Welcome to At Home and Abroad with Harrison Walker. Join us each week as we explore the far reaches of the globe in search of unique characters and stories to share. Reach beyond your front door as we uncover new perspectives, intriguing ideas, and lessons learned over time. Let's jump in. The Cambridge Dictionary defines dirty work as unpleasant or dishonest, jobs that most people do not want to do. Society often stigmatizes these jobs, and though often necessary to the safety, security, and health of society, the individuals performing this work are often marginalized, impoverished, and bearing real physical and psychological risks. As the saying goes, it's a dirty job, but somebody has to do it. We dig into the murky social and moral context of dirty work with award-winning author A.L. Press, who through the examination of correctional officers and inmates in America's penal system, military drone operators, and more, explores the inequity of power in society that gives context to some of the more dangerous, violent, and often ethically troubling jobs. So join us as we roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty as we dig into the complex issue of dirty jobs. So the term dirty job is a familiar term made more popular with the television series Dirty Jobs. Right. I've seen that show. The host, Mike Rowe, highlighted the people performing jobs which most of us would consider dangerous or to some degree even disgusting. In advance of our episode today, I thought I would take a peek at the viewer reviews to see what people actually thought of this show. And? Well, some people thought that the show highlighted work that we would rather not think about. Dirty Jobs was praised for highlighting what goes on behind the scenes in some of the most unsavory work scenarios, most of which we know very little about. And perhaps more importantly, this show was credited for allowing these workers the opportunity to shine. Yeah, well, it definitely achieved that. When seeing what some people do for employment, you realize how much you take for granted in the systems that prop up the world around you. Did you know that there is also a European spinoff, Dirty Jobs with Peter Schmeichel? No, I've never seen the spinoff. I haven't seen it either, but the structure is quite similar, I hear. Apparently, there is some eel farming and inseminating pigs. Jobs I fortunately know very little about or actually have very little hands-on experience. Zero, actually. (laughs) I'm shocked, Walker. I'm shocked. (laughs) Another similar show was produced in the UK called Worst Jobs in History, though I haven't seen this one either. I have. It has a slightly different spin on the American series Dirty Jobs. Sir Tony Robinson reenacts jobs which have been described as dangerous, unhealthy, boringly monotonous, disgusting, and immoral that ever were in British history. Ooh, that sounds pretty awesome. (laughs) I like the historical angle. I know. Yeah, I liked it. There were so many jobs in history, particularly those that existed prior to modern medicine, that were pretty dirty by modern standards. Okay, do tell. Well, take, for example, the doctor barber or the barber surgeon whose job involved bloodletting and leeching, among other things like cutting hair, removing of teeth and amputating limbs. Wow, a jack of all trades. He was like a medical one-man band. Exactly. Did you know that the colors on the barber pole historically represent red for the blood and white for bandages used? No, but that's kind of gruesome. I don't think I'm ever going to look at those poles the same way. Well, after this next job I'm going to share with you, you won't want to look at toilets the same way either, (laughs) Harris. Okay, well, this should be delightful. (laughs) Ever heard of the groom of stool? (laughs) No. 
no, I'm not really sure I want to. Well, the groom's stool was a position often granted to the son of a nobleman. Despite what you might think, not just anyone could hold this position. Sources claim the role was established during the reign of King Henry VIII, and apparently the job description required that the groom or young man would have to carry the portable commode, water and towels from place to place so that the king had all the necessities readily available when he had to stage an evacuation, if you know what I mean. Oh, boy. The groom of the stool was also responsible for monitoring the king's diet and bowel movements and even arranging his work schedule according to his schedule. Oh, his schedule. I wonder what kind of qualifications the king was looking for in a prospective groom of stool. I have no idea, but I hope the position was highly paid. Yeah. (laughs) These series that exposed the less loved jobs were very popular, perhaps because people couldn't imagine performing some of these downright gruesome tasks today. Right. So what constitutes a dirty job? Well, that's a great question. And in fact, a complicated question. I'm assuming that you mean today and not in the Elizabethan period. Right. I think we covered that one. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that most people who hear the term dirty job instinctively think of jobs that require an individual to work in a physically dirty environment. Right. Take, for example, any work that requires interaction with poop. That would be a dirty job. I absolutely agree that that would be a dirty job. I can think of a number of jobs that require one to get their hands dirty. Some are more physical in nature, like livestock production, sanitation, things like that. But some are more white collar, for example, gastroenterologists. Right. Colonoscopies cannot be all that fun to perform. Necessary, but maybe not that much fun. Maybe not that much fun. And what about those people who are tasked with the cleanup after tragic accidents or horrible crimes? But what would we do without those people? Exactly. When we first began digging into this topic, I couldn't believe that there are people whose job it is to actually smell deodorant that's been applied to underarms, clean or otherwise, and they have to report back to whether the deodorant does in fact work. Um, that's gross and somewhat unreal. Can you imagine having that job? No, actually, I can't. But I think I would take it over a dog food taster. Oh my gosh, what? I'm not kidding. There are people who actually do this for a living. In Great Britain, pet food tasters can make approximately twenty to 50,000 pounds annually. I came across an interview with such a person and they reported to like the dog food. Well, at least they took some enjoyment from their job. But really, Dog food? I know, a bit gross, but for some people, a dirty job is not one where there are unsavory or smelly tasks to perform. Rather, it is dirty work, a job which has a higher than average level of danger associated with it. Yeah, the first thing that comes to mind are first responders like law enforcement, paramedics, firefighters, and correctional officers. It also makes me think of miners, whether the coal miners of days gone by or contemporary miners who are oftentimes, sadly, children in this world today. Yeah, not easy jobs, any of them, though some come with more pay and prestige than others, don't they? Yeah. I wonder what the most dangerous job is these days. Well, according to CNBC in 2019, the most dangerous job in the United States was a logging worker. Wow, a logging worker. I've read a lot of heritage and history of logging in Ontario, Canada, because Canada's growth relied quite a bit on our natural forest resources, but I didn't really realize it was still a contemporary occupation. It is, and it's dangerous. It was reported that the greatest risk to logging workers was the possibility of being hit by a falling object while felling trees or being hurt while operating machinery. 
The rate of fatal accidents reported was 28 times higher than the all-worker rate, which was 3.5 fatalities per 100,000 full-time equivalent workers. Wow, that does not sound like a safe line of work. Okay, Walker, I know everyone loves to hate a realtor because they think that they make money hand over fist with barely any effort at all. But from experience, I want to say it truly can be a dirty job. Keep in mind, it is female-dominated, but despite that, realtors are expected to respond to a stranger's invitation, go into their homes alone, tour the property in its entirety, including the creepy basement, so you can see how there is a high level of risk associated with this job. Right, Walker? Oh, yes, and that's why we're a team, Harris. We look out for each other. We do. The term dirty work is not new. It was first introduced in 1951 by American sociologist Everett Hughes. It was meant to refer to tasks and occupations that are likely to be perceived as disgusting and degrading. And then there are those jobs which are seen by some as being unethical or immoral. I would definitely agree that there are a lot of dirty jobs in that sense. Absolutely. Now, did you see the 2009 movie Up in the Air starring George Clooney and Anna Kendrick? No, I didn't. Well, Clooney plays a seasoned corporate downsizer who is asked to mentor Kendrick. Clooney spends most of the film proving to Kendrick the importance of face-to-face meetings with the individuals he fires. Hmm. As a dramedy, I have to say there are some pretty uncomfortable scenes mixed in with the humor. It is the humorous moments, though, in the film that make watching these uncomfortable scenes of people getting fired actually tolerable. Not a job I would want, this is for sure. Yeah, I knew someone who did this for a living. In fact, I think she still does. It would be a very difficult job to feel good about. No kidding. Might make it tough to sleep at night, actually. Absolutely. So that kind of job might irritate your conscience a bit, but I think there are many jobs that are much more difficult to perform. There certainly are. Take, for example, this one, Walker, rodent landmine detector. Well, I've never heard of this type of work before. Yeah, I don't think it's very common, particularly in North America, but the job is as it sounds. And I think it does require a lot of skill. The job requires clearing landmines, which were buried in jungles during the Vietnam War. In Cambodia, for instance, large African rats, who are very clever little creatures, are used to sniff out TNT. The individual handling these rodents makes about $10 a day. Wow, that's heroic work. Heroic work for not a lot of pay. And how about a snake milker? I've heard of these, and in 1980, on a trip to Florida, I saw this actually being done. Oh, wow, you did? Mm -hmm, It's mm -hmm. definitely not my cup of tea, but tell us all about it, Walker. Well, it was quite interesting, actually. Snake venom is extracted from the fangs of a snake with the intent of developing anti-venom to administer to those who've been bitten by a snake and risk death as a result of the bite. The job pays anywhere from $2,000 to $5,000 a month, I'm told. Okay. So these kinds of jobs clearly involve health and safety risks, but there are other very difficult jobs that are undesirable for other reasons. For example, think about mass production factory workers. They usually work extremely long hours, making everything from garments to electronics. In some places in the world, they can earn as little as 76 cents an hour for their labor. And that might already sound like next to nothing, but then consider that 30% of that goes to the factory owner for their room and board. These workers can never get ahead. This is disgraceful and a huge global problem, which we all contribute to by purchasing fast fashion and electronics. 
Absolutely. This topic certainly deserves a little bit more investigation and probably an episode onto itself to really do it justice. So what provokes someone to choose a dirty, difficult, and sometimes dangerous job? Sometimes the pay can be attractive in order to entice applicants, but more often than not, these jobs are filled by people who are disadvantaged financially and will sacrifice their health, safety, and sometimes their own personal morality in order to support their families. Yes, that makes sense on both counts. Yeah. I think about garbage collectors sometimes. You know, obviously they have to deal with job unpleasantries. Right. It's stinky. You're exposed to the elements, but there is also a high risk of getting hurt on the job. You're lifting heavy items day after day. Sometimes there's dangerous items inside. There's also risks of being in traffic because you're getting on and off the truck. And there is clearly a social stigma around the job that people have turned a blind eye to. Currently, the average salary in the U.S. for a garbage collector or sanitation worker, as they're often called, is $43,000 annually with a possibility of reaching $60,000 with overtime. So you might not become rich in this career, but you will be able to support yourself and probably your family. Very interesting. Yeah, and then you think about the coal miners. We, we touched on this too. These jobs are notoriously risky for your health and safety. They make about $64,000 annually, which can be quite attractive to those people who may not have many options for a steady income. Right. And then I'm going to bring it up, the people who clean up after crime scenes. It's something we don't want to think about, and therefore we don't think about it. But cleaning up after a messy murder is an unfortunate but real necessity in today's society. Depending on the nature of the crime, this work can take from a few hours to a few days to accomplish. Now, this is a job I would have troubles doing, but what is the pay? Apparently, cleaners earn an hourly wage. Annually, these workers can make anywhere from seventy-five dollars to $100,000 in North America. But there are risks beyond potential exposure to infectious disease. It would be your mental health that would be really vulnerable. Yes, I imagine that working in this type of environment day after day could significantly contribute to higher rates of post-traumatic stress and depression easily. Absolutely. And you might think that the work conducted in a funeral home might carry similar stresses, but I've actually heard that it can be quite a calm environment to work within, particularly for the introverts among us. Embalmers are responsible for preparing deceased people for viewing and or burial, and these individuals really have to be thoughtful and respectful in their work. So many people would consider an embalming job to be unsavory because it does require down and dirty work with a human body. It requires washing and massaging the body, as well as draining the blood and gases prior to injecting the embalming fluid to slow down the decomposition process. But there's also a creative aspect as the hair, makeup, and dress of the individual is important too. Embalmers are regarded as a little fringe in society, perhaps morbid, but did you know that they risk exposing themselves to potential diseases and chemicals too from the embalming fluid? So there are real risks involved. Apparently, embalmers earn on average $41,000 US. Honestly, I thought it would be more. Yeah, I did too, and I wonder why that is. Maybe we regard it as a job that would require a little bit more skill. As per the article, 10 High-Paying Dirty Jobs, written by Jane McGraw, she notes that it needs to be kept in mind that salaries will depend on experience, location, hours, and intensity of work. Of course, this all makes sense. 
Yeah. So if you consider that gastroenterologist, these doctors have expertise in the disorders and diseases of the GI tract, which, as we all know, involves the pooper. This so-called dirty job tops the list in Jane McGraw's article at between $250,000 to $400,000 paid annually. But of course, this specialization requires an immense amount of education. Does it ever? And thank goodness there are people who want to take on that job. Mm -hmm. Now, I've heard that often people are attracted to some of these positions because they really are adverse to working in an office, you know, that day-to-day grind where Mm -hmm. you know exactly what the next day is going to lead to in terms of your work environment. Yeah, and I completely am down with that. I don't really want to be in the same environment day-to-day. I like a little bit of unpredictability. It really would depend on how you regarded your job, though, wouldn't it? For example, I could imagine that even working in the sewers, despite the obvious downside, could be interesting and an adventure in its own right as you walk beneath the streets away from the hustle and bustle of the city. Very good point. These are exactly the feelings of photographer and urban explorer Steve Duncan, who's known for venturing into the sewers below the streets of New York City to capture some of the most incredible photographs. Hmm. You can see his photographic work if you go to undercity.org. Duncan states that by showing people that the sewer is a pretty and interesting thing, it helps people care. He was also featured in the award-winning documentary called A Beautiful Waste, which I've yet to see, but is definitely on my list of movies to watch. In the movie, he is quoted as saying, It's understandable to want to go out and look at the natural environment. I'm just taking that same approach to the cities. Now, Duncan describes the experience of being in the sewers in his statement, You feel a sense of awe. It is dead quiet, and you feel like you are the last man on earth. And that is incredibly rare in New York City. Is it ever? His photography is truly remarkable. It is a must to check it out. His work also likely contributes to reducing the stigma associated with sanitation and sewer work. I find this is a very interesting and important topic of discussion. I do too. Not only are there risks to the body and mind, though, in some of these jobs, Walker, but often people in these very necessary roles suffer from negative self-worth due to negative stigmatization. Now, I did come across this in my research for this episode, Harris. I had the opportunity to read some firsthand reports of sanitation workers and others in these sorts of jobs, jobs that not everyone wants to do or even talk about. Right. Sadly, some of these people hide what they do for a living. Yeah, that's terrible. And yet I imagine some people are very good at their job and can find this work rewarding. Yes, they do. We all benefit from the work and contribution to society that these people offer. We need sanitation workers, embalmers, snake milkers, and the like to keep society's wheels turning. There should be no shame in this kind of work. Absolutely. Sociologist Everett Hughes observed that dirty work was performed on behalf of society only for society to ultimately stigmatize them or disown them. He noted that these groups of people become an extension of their dirty work and therefore dirty workers. Similarly, in an article in the Journal of Occupational Behavior, dirty work is identified as those jobs that have associated low occupational prestige or even a servile relationship to their clients or employers. For instance, domestic work. Yeah, we talked about some of these issues in our Upstairs Downstairs episode, didn't we? We are grateful to have the opportunity to explore the topic of dirty work in more depth with AL Press, award-winning writer and journalist who contributes to The New Yorker, 
The New York Times, and other publications. His most recent book, Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequity in America, examines the morally troubling jobs that society tacitly condones and the hidden class of workers who do them. Welcome to At Home and Abroad AL. Thank you so much. So first, let me say that your book is exceptional. Both Heather and I read it, of course. Using your own coined term, it sheds light on the shadows of undesirable and morally injurious jobs, even in this culture of distraction. Why should we be having this conversation about dirty work in today's North American context? Thank you so much for the kind words about the book. I think we should be having the conversation because we have seen certainly in the United States, but I think in much of the developed world during the pandemic, uh, it really shed a spotlight on the division of labor, who does jobs in safe conditions, sitting at a desk at home, not being exposed to potential contagion and virus and other physical risks, and who is out there doing what were in the United States called essential jobs, you know, people delivering packages, and, you know, that that were needed, but that were also dangerous to do. And it sort of became clear there was a class division that the people who were doing these so-called essential jobs um, tended to be lower skilled folks with, with fewer opportunities who had fewer choices and who were kind of pressed into those jobs. Well, dirty work is exactly that. It is, um, as I define it in the book, it is morally questionable activity or work that um, society depends on and tacitly condones, but doesn't generally want to hear too much about. And so it tends to be hidden from view. Um, If we think of things like the work of running America's prisons and jails, and the prison system in America is the largest prison system in the world. So we're talking about a lot of jobs. We're talking about a lot of work. And we're talking about a lot of work done under really stressful conditions both physically stressful, the safety issues, but morally stressful because so much that is morally questionable goes on every day in a prison system. Or think about the industrial slaughterhouses that feed the United States and that the United States also exports a lot of the meat that it processes, totally hidden from consumers, but absolutely central to capitalism and and the food system that the United States has. So I thought it's important to look at the lives of the people who are doing this work. And one of the the basic points of my book is that the folks who do this work are not the elites of society. They are undocumented immigrants who work in those slaughterhouses. They are high school graduates in dying towns without a lot of other jobs around. And they get pressed into this labor that, as you said at the outset, it isn't just that the, the work involves a kind of morally questionable enterprise like America's prison system, but it is also injurious to the people who do it, whether that's because of shame and stigma and the sort of lowly status of the job, or the fact that the job thrusts people into ethically compromising situations where fulfilling the job requires them to do things a lot of us wouldn't want to do. Right. So as you said, this concept of dirty work explores the correctional system the work of military drone warriors and slaughterhouse workers. We're not talking plumbers and garbage men here. A common struggle among these individuals employed in these fields, though, is to maintain good mental health. So how is poor mental health a hallmark of these dirty jobs? 
Well, as you just said, um, and as I should have clarified from the outset, I don't mean hauling the garbage, right? A lot of people, when they hear that phrase, dirty work, they may think that, um, oh, it's physically dirty. No, I mean, I mean morally troubling and emotionally wrenching work. Um, dirty in the sense that it seems you know, morally questionable. And, and, and um, you know, I, I, t- I took the term from a famous essay by a sociologist, Everett Hughes, and in his essay, it was an, the essay was called Good People and Dirty Work. The dirty work he refers to in that essay is actually the work of rounding up the Jews in Nazi Germany. So that's, that's, an, extremely, uh, that's an extreme example of the genre. But, w- but what he said was, we have, you know, less extreme versions of dirty work in every society, including his own society, which was the United States. And that was really the takeoff point for my book. And the book is about, it is about what some have called hidden injuries of class. This is, a, there's a famous book titled The Hidden Injuries of Class by, by Richard Sennett and uh, the great sociologist. And, and what, what that book sort of explains at the outset is that when we think of class, we think of the division of wealth, you know, we think of, of class as a monetary thing, but the moral burdens and the emotional burdens of class and of, of, of different kinds of work can be equally profound and, and debilitating to people. And it, it sort of instantly makes sense to us that the jobs that are the least desirable are going to have the most burdens in that way, right? They're, they're less prestigious, they're more looked down on. Um, and so when we think about working in a prison in the United States, well, that's not like being a cop in the United States. And of course, there's an enormous controversy about the police in the United States right now. But prison guards are a step beyond that in terms of, um, it's not even controversy, it's really disrepute. Like who would really grow up wanting to be a prison guard? And and if you talk to prison guards, as I did in, in writing the book, um, what you find out is they're very aware of this, right? They're very aware that that society sees them as these kinds of, for lack of of better word, turnkeys or or you know brutes. But what I suggest in the book is that the people working in America's prisons are agents of the good people in America, of the of the people who elect politicians who built the prison system because they passed the laws, who uh, don't fund mental health services and use the prisons as a de facto mental health system. You began the question by asking about mental health. The people who do dirty work in America are often traumatized in different ways by this work. Um, And so I I look at that in the book. Mm -hmm. Now, you reference the label of shadow people used to reference the workers in slaughterhouses. This term, it, ev- it evokes a particularly powerful image of people hidden from society's scrutiny. Now, in your mind, is it society that adverts their gaze or does the stigma of these jobs encourage the workers to hide themselves away? I think it's both. Uh, it's a really good question. I think that when, when I met the workers in a poultry plant in Texas, and these were mostly undocumented immigrants, women, from Mexico, they worked in a plant where they were denied bathroom breaks. And the reason they were denied bathroom breaks is because it's all about the speed at which you process. So the the, the chickens are going around on a line. They don't want to slow that line down because it will cut into profits. And in turn, and by the way, Americans love their cheap 
plentiful chicken. That's what's at KFC. That's what is at Chick-fil-A. So um, it's all connected to what consumers are buying. But what the workers pointed out is they said, you know, when Americans buy chicken at the supermarket, they often look for labels saying humanely treated. But the humanely treated is about the animals. It is not about the workers. There's nothing on the package to tell you how the workers were treated. And that, I think, is the hiddenness of a society that has basically decided we're okay with eating this food produced under invisible conditions. We're fine with not hearing anything about how the workers are treated. At the same time, there is a certain level of disrepute around the job of working in a slaughterhouse. It's not prestigious. It's probably something you wouldn't go to a cocktail party in Cambridge and tell people you did unless you were an anthropologist doing field work. So um, so it's a little of both, I think. Mm-hmm. And they're often tucked away as well. Very much so. Um, a, a common theme in my book is is the the ways that society keeps this work out of sight. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been true really throughout history in the United States. At one point in my book, I talk about, this is a very vivid example of dirty work. I talk about the people who, who, the slave traders in antebellum America. Now, antebellum America in the South, you know, slavery was the key to the whole society, right? Everyone was implicated in it, but nobody had a good word to say about the slave traders. And because this was, you know, this was embarrassing. It was, so what did they do? They hid this, you know, they tried to keep it They tried to stow it away and and dissociate themselves. And dirty work is all about this process of dissociation, where society both, on the one hand, asks for what the workers are doing. On the other hand, doesn't want to hear about the work. So do you think it's possible to to influence and encourage people in, in the upper echelons of society to acknowledge these workers and the struggles that they're facing in the morally objectionable work that they're doing? It's definitely possible. I mean, in in my book, I look at the prison system and the work, the dirty work inside America's prison system. I look at slaughterhouses. I look at, as as you mentioned before, the the drone program, the the, the targeted assassinations that are carried out by by military drones. All of those things. There's possibility for public attitudes to change, and in fact. In the last 15, 20 years in America, there's been a profound change when it comes to the prison system. Um, nobody talked about mass incarceration as a problem in America, really up until, I would say, uh, Michelle Alexander published her book, The New Jim Crow. Um, there started to be activism and advocates saying, wait a minute, what are we doing here? We're supposedly this free society that values, cherishes liberty we've got a bigger incarceration system than China. What does that say about the kind of society we've become? Well, it's changed profoundly the debate about prisons. And and, and Americans, I think, these days, even elected officials on the right who run for office don't say, hey, I want to build more prisons. We got to lock them up and throw away the keys. Well, that was the standard line in the 80s and 90s in the United States. So yes, society can change. The way I think that dirty work can be brought to light and and the conditions and maybe even the existence of this work altered and changed is, however, not individual. It requires collective action. 
So in other words, someone might read my book and say, oh, well, that's terrible, but I don't have anything to do with it. You know, I don't eat meat. I don't support the prison system. And that's fine. Um, it's good to, to sleep well at night thinking I, you know, you're not implicated in those things. But to really change those systems, I think, requires some collective consciousness. Yeah, I agree. And I think, too, our attitudes towards dirty work, they become entrenched due to income inequality and as well as the racialized hierarchy that we experience across North America. So how do we combat those overarching systems to reduce the stigma and marginalization of dirty workers? I know that's a big question. I mean, I think it it doesn't happen overnight. And, you know, I think that the systems are real and they're powerful and they're deeply entrenched. But we always have to remember that systems require human beings and individuals to operate. They don't operate on their own. There aren't blind forces that keep America's prison system running. There are human beings who are hired to, to run the mental health wards of, of prisons, which are now, as I say in the book, the largest mental health institutions in the United States. Now, I think it's extremely convenient for Americans to blame the folks working in those mental health wards when terrible things happen, say, as they do in one of the prisons I, I write about in detail, a prison in Florida. There were terrible, terrible abuses of the, the mentally ill incarcerated people in this prison. It's called the Dade Correctional Institution. And it would be very easy to say, oh, God, they must have had a brutal bunch of guards there who were responsible. And that is, that is usually how it plays out on the local news. And that's it. Everybody forgets yeah. about it. Well, that's not good enough because those guards are paid very little. They are not trained to deal with the population they're dealing with. They don't have programs and professionals and let alone an environment where they will productively intervene in the lives of a lot of the people who, who are under their watch. So what do we expect will happen in those situations? Well, the guards are going to very quickly learn that the only way to enforce order in the institution is through force, through threat, through violence. And so America's prison system is run on those things. Florida, as I say in the book, spends the second least of any state in America on mental health services. So you have a lot of people who need those services and don't get them. And then it has the third largest prison system in the United States. So where do the folks end up who don't get those services? A lot of them end up cycling through the criminal justice system. And then when something bad happens, we say, oh, these terrible guards, how could they have done this? You know, they, they were brutal. They, they violated the human rights of these, of these people. Well, who created this system? It was, you know, then Governor Rick Scott, who, who is now, of course, a senator. It was the head of the Department of Corrections. It was all the voters who put them in office and didn't think, you know, why are we doing this? So we have to look beyond just blaming the people who do this quote unquote dirty work. Absolutely. And often many of the people who engage in these kinds of forms of employment don't have many options. As you said, they might be high school grads in a small town or can't avail themselves of the education required to have more employment options. So yeah, we have to look at it. 
from a systemic point of view, but also, as you say, recognizing that there are real people behind structuring these systems in uh, the United States. Absolutely. I mean, I, I didn't write this in the book, but um, I sometimes say this. If you wanted to f- find a way to to change the fact that prisons and jails in America are are the largest mental health institutions in the United States, one way you could do it is take all the top psychology programs in the United States that where where the best where the top psychiatrists and psychologists are trained professionally, and after they graduate, they will spend a year working in the carceral system, using their skills and their knowledge to treat that population. I can assure you, if that happened within a year, we would have an open movement calling for this to end because it is simply so inhumane. But that's not who works in the carceral, you know, in these mental health wards. So um, it's hidden away and the workers who do it are, are, as you say, a less privileged group of people. Well, I love that recommendation. Hopefully powers that be hear it. It would be great. What's next for you, Al? What are you working on now? What What can we expect from you in the in the near future? Well, I, I wish I could tell you I had my next book idea. Um, I will say that I am a working journalist, so I'm I'm at work on a couple of long investigative uh, magazine stories that will come out soon. And you know, my work seems to go back again and again to two subjects that. Are, are really central to dirty work and probably to all of my writing. And one of them is, is inequality and, you know, how to address it and why it exists and why we should care about it. And the second is how people navigate morally treacherous situations, um, which, you know, I wrote a book about moral courage called Beautiful Souls. And in dirty work, I kind of also look at how people who are put in these situations that cause one to experience the flicker of conscience, what do you do in those situations? That That's a question that fascinates me. Um, and I don't think it's just an individual question, though often the decision is an individual one. I think there are all kinds of social questions that you know we should think about when we think about moral courage and the lack of courage. It is a fascinating topic, which is why I really enjoyed your book. It makes you really try and take a new perspective on on some of the work that is done that is in support of all of us and the functioning of our society, but can be morally treacherous, as you say. And always the topic of inequality is something that always requires a light shone on it. So we we are very deeply appreciative of the work that you do. You can find AL at www.alpress.com and follow AL on Instagram at at al.press. You can find his latest book on Amazon and other reputable booksellers near you. And you can explore his other past written works as I plan to do after this interview. So thank you very much, Al. We really appreciate your time. And of course, again, we really appreciate the light you shine on some of these difficult topics. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And again, I'll leave folks with the thought that when they see someone do a job that they think is dirty or, or discomforting or, you know, I wouldn't do that. What they should ask themselves is what would they do in that situation if they had no better choice? And furthermore, would that job even exist if the sons and daughters of society's elites had to do it? So I'll leave with that closing thought. A lot to think about. Thank you very much, Ayo. 
What I keep coming back to is the fact that many of these jobs that we consider dirty are critical to the functioning of contemporary society. Can you imagine if there were no sanitation workers? I know. Ale Press describes a nearly invisible workforce that toil on our behalf. Consequently, these workers suffer the impacts of the work itself and the stigma, both mentally and physically, as society keeps turning either a blind eye or a scathing eye of judgment their way. Yeah, well put, Walker. I hope in our small way we can shine a spotlight on these marginalized people. They deserve acknowledgement, not judgment. We need to check our moral compass, stash the stigma, and bring transparency to dirty jobs and dirty work. Thank you for joining us at At Home and Abroad with your hosts, Harrison Walker. Subscribe to follow us each week as we continue the conversation. You can also say hi to us on Instagram and Facebook at at Harris and Walker. We would love to hear from you.